Welcome to the Nemeth Report podcast. Hello, I'm Dr. Tammy Nemeth, historian and independent researcher, and I'll be your host. On today's podcast, we will explore the issue of electricity and the net zero transition. We live at an unprecedented time in human history. Things are not as bad as they're made out to be. More people than ever have been raised out of poverty to live longer, better lives on a greener, cleaner planet. We can thank reliable, affordable hydrocarbons and the electrification of our society for this flourishing. We should also thank the core Western values of individual freedoms, property rights, and the rule of law that enabled this innovation. But this human flourishing is now at risk. There's a transnational progressive movement working very hard to bring about a fundamental paradigm shift, a great transformation of our society. The goal of the movement is to transform the entire global system through a net zero transition and ESG scores. Our energy system will be decarbonized. Hydrocarbon production and consumption in Western developed countries will be replaced by windmills and solar panels littered across our fields and backyards. The transnational progressive movement with its net zero battle cry is trying to tear down our way of life and replace it with energy poverty, loss of personal freedoms, and the real danger of freezing in the dark. This will be the outcome of a technocratic, decarbonized net zero civilization. Our current system may not be perfect, but it has improved the care of our environment, planet, and people unlike any other. This is a system worth restoring and fighting for. Today, to discuss these issues, I'll be joined by Robert Bryce, a research fellow at the Austin-based Foundation for Research on Equal Opportunity, the author most recently of A Question of Power, Electricity and the Wealth of Nations, co-producer of the documentary Juice, How Electricity Explains the World, and the host of the amazing Power Hungry podcast. Welcome, Robert. Thank you for joining me today. Oop, there I am. Hi, happy to be with you. Hi. Um, I just wanted to say that I'm I'm a big fan of your work and I especially enjoyed your documentary Juice and um, I'm an avid listener to your podcast. And I'm wondering if you could just take a moment to tell our Canadian listeners who may not know you uh, a little bit about yourself, how you came to energy issues and how you came to write A Question of Power. Sure, happy to. Uh, well, thanks for having me on. Um, as far as my introduction, uh, it's interesting. I. You know, I have a podcast and I always have guests introduce themselves, so uh, it's good to have the tables turned every once in a while. Uh, so who am I? Well, I'm, I'm a husband. I'm, my wife, Lauren, and I've been married 35 years. Uh, we have three great kids, Mary, Michael, and Jacob, and uh, those are the most important things in my life. Um, I'm also an author, journalist, filmmaker, podcaster. Um, I've written six books on the energy and power business. Uh, the latest, as you kindly mentioned, The Question of Power, Electricity, and the Wealth of Nations. Uh, our, that, that book came out in May of last year, and uh, we also produced, uh, with my colleague Tyson Culver, we produced a, a documentary, a feature-length documentary called Juice, How Electricity Explains the World. Uh, so uh, I've been busy. Uh, you know, these blackouts that hit Texas in, in, in February uh, due to the winter storm, um, and now we're having widespread blackouts, of course, in Louisiana. We've seen numerous blackouts in California. Um, I'm just very much focused on electricity, cheap, abundant, reliable electricity, and, and the resilience and reliability and affordability of the grid. And these are issues that I think are really being challenged now, uh, to your point about ESG and net zero, by these claims that we can just convert all of our energy and power systems to run on weather-dependent renewables. And I think it's not just a bad idea. It's a very dangerous one. That That's an excellent point. And um, I, I want to explore that that aspect of it 
in just a moment, but I, I wanted to point out one of the obvious and profound points that, that you make in your book and that electricity equals modernity and how the initial program of rural electrification during the depression was such an important development for the advancement of the United States. And it's also been really important for the more recent accelerated advancement in China. Um, and I loved in your book how you mentioned Representative Sam Rayburn from the New Deal era, and you quote him as saying, I want my people out of the mud and I want my people out of the dark. And I, I thought that was so telling because it seems now that the that the Angos and the progressive movement um, who happen to be in power throughout, it seems, every Western country right now, they, they want to dim our lights and return us to the mud and the dark by being overly dependent on on electricity i'm not saying that electric like electricity is super important but it's like putting all of the eggs into one basket and um and, and, and i'll seize on that if you don't mind tammy because i think sure. that that's one of the critical points here and it's one that is is personal to me now um i told you i, I live in I, I live in texas i live in austin and my wife and i've lived here now for 36 years we were blacked out in February for 45 hours. And one of the only reasons why we were able to stay in our house and we're moderately comfortable was that we have a natural gas connection. And so we could cook, we had hot water, um, we could heat up at least the kitchen with just the burners on the stove. And so, you know, while it was unpleasant to not have electricity for those two days, we could stay in our house. And this idea that we should put all of our energy eggs in one basket, put all of our energy demand onto the electric grid at the very same time that the electric grid in the United States is showing increasing frailty is just crazy town. I don't know any other way to put it, but it is just deeply dangerous and misguided that this idea that, oh, well, climate change is such a concern, it overrides every other one. No, no, absolutely not. That makes no sense whatsoever. Climate change is a concern. It's not our only concern. And what yet what we are seeing is over and over this, these claims that, oh, the danger is so great, we have to you know completely transform our energy and power systems. Well, no, you don't. Because if you buy that, the cost would be crippling to the economy. And the dangers of, 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 of attempting this and increasing our vulnerability to disruption of the electric grid which, as I said, are showing we've seen extraordinary events, unusual occurrence on the electric grid in the U.S. between 2000 and 2020, an increase 13-fold. Why would we ever do this? I mean, it just makes no sense whatsoever from any kind of strategic security standpoint. And yet, this is the mantra of the moment. You're absolutely right. And and I find that so troubling because, you know, if you, if you listen to Bjorn Lomborg, he's like, where are the cost-benefit analyses? Where's the trade-offs between looking out for the climate and being able to adapt to whatever changes come our way, but still allow people to um, thrive and have human flourishing. Um, and, and it's very dangerous what I think is going on, not just in the United States with, you know, the it's a Green New Deal, really, in the infrastructure bill, they just don't call it that. And the same thing in Canada, there's been like three or four different um, legislative initiatives combined together as a Green New Deal, but they don't want to call it that because then it's it's a target. Then people can come after them and say, well, that Green New Deal is not right or whatever. And so it's this piecemeal transformation and it doesn't benefit people. Um, I think of the 
your recent article in Real Clear Energy about California calling it the new green Jim Crow. And you think of how, who's going to be impacted the most by this? It won't be the elites, you know, they'll find some way to, to get around it, but the middle class and the, and the, the people who are, who are, um, struggling with utility costs. I mean, that's this, this has profound implications for them. So what's more important, like you said, is it, is it the planet? Should we only care about the planet and, and leave the people to make their way or should we find some way to, to have a balance? Well, I, I think that that's it exactly, that there has to be some balance in this decision. And, and part of that balance has to understand and has to make a priority, whatever these policies will have, whatever effect these policies will have on the poor and the middle class. And we can look at California and see already what is happening, where the state of California last year alone, electricity prices went up 7%, the increase was a sevenfold increase over what happened in the rest of the U.S., you have the highest in California, the highest poverty rate in America. You have the high, the largest Latino population. And one of the things that to me is, and it's among the most interesting in, uh, political developments in the United States that I know of, is this backlash that's gathering and it's coming from the left. It's coming from uh, the Latino leaders in the state suing the state of California over their energy and climate policy. And that what are what are their principal objections? It's regressive. That these, these energy and climate policies are re limiting the ability of Latinos and other low income pe and uh, uh, Latinos, low income people uh, across the racial uh, spectrum. It's preventing them from buying homes. Well, because they, they're, they're adding one of the newest regulations involves vehicle miles traveled. They want to put a tax on new housing in a state that is dramatically short of millions of units of housing short want to increase the cost of housing in the name of climate change by reducing the number of miles individuals can drive. I mean, it's just a skein of regulations that all of which, when you take them together, are incredibly regressive and it's just wrong. It's bad public policy. And I've been following it. I continue to follow it because me, it's not just interesting politically. It's, it's, it's interesting in, in how the elites just completely disregard the need of the poor and the middle class. That's absolutely right. And um, do you think, what do you think the chances of success are with that court case? No. <laughs> well, it's when you ask that because I've, I've been in touch with Jennifer Hernandez, who is a lawyer um, at Holland and Knight, which is a very well-regarded law firm in San Francisco. She's one of the top land use lawyers in California. And I asked her that very question and she said, well, they're just rope-a-doping us. And, and I don't know if you know what rope-a-dope, that was the uh, term that was uh, coined by Muhammad Ali, where he let the other uh, boxer just themselves out. In other words, you said they're, they're just trying to solve for time. They're, you know, their lawyers with the state are, you know, filing all kinds of motions to, to delay the proceeding, delay, 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 because they don't want to argue the case on the merits. And it's deeply cynical, but this is the way the world works. You know, they have the power. They're not going to respond to these kinds of, in, in fact, it's in many, many of their claims are civil rights claims involving equal protection um, and under the Fair Housing Act. So these are federal claims they're making as well. So, I mean, it's a very significant, but, uh, uh, a legal challenge to the way the state is run, but, uh, you know, their chances of success are very small to be clear. That's, that's unfortunate. And, and I think of how it seems like the Angos have unlimited amounts of money to do litigation and they always seem to get fairly quick results, um, when they want to shut things down. But when it comes to people who, who are actually suffering, um, then the system seems to turn a bit of a blind eye. Um, I wanted to make a comment here because 
I lived in Germany for six years and experienced the, um, the energy transition there that significantly increased the, the cost of living to people. And, you know, we would go to visit uh, our friends and the house would be freezing and they would only heat the room they were in. So, you know, the other rooms in the house, they would have timers on the radiators to turn them on for a couple of hours, maybe before they were going to go in the room or something. But I mean, our mortgage costs less than our energy bills in, really? in Germany. It's insane. And it's gotten worse since we left. So, you know, we talk to our friends and they're like, it's becoming really unbearable. They have to make choices. How much? And why, why were you there? I'm sure. I'm just curious. What, what were you doing in Germany? Um, for my husband's work. I see. So and how? And where did you live? We lived near Bremen, which is in the northern part of Germany, which is relatively mild compared to, say, Munich or any of the the more mountainous regions. So, um, even there, where it's you know relatively temperate climate, um, people were were suffering, and if they would, didn't have a lot of income. They had to make choices and yeah. they saw a lot of um, installations of fire burners, you know, like the little ovens, yeah. um, fireplaces and whatnot, just so people could heat their, their living room or whatever. And, you know, it's, it's worse now. And I, you know, now that we're living in the UK, the UK is going that way. So we've seen our energy price go up here over the past few years as they take more thermal generation off the grid and right. pursue their renewables and um they supposedly upgraded our line not too long ago and we have blackouts our light bulbs explode you know because there's um fluctuations at, uh, on the on the lines and stuff so that's not a way to run a modern society and when i saw your your documentary um juice you know, when you traveled to the developing world and interviewed some of those amazing, resilient people and determined people, what was your sense of how they viewed energy and electricity? Well, it's interesting you ask that because, uh, you know, I, I, it's in question and, you know, I, and I'm, I'm pleased and flattered that you like the film. I'm, I'm very proud of it. And uh, my colleague Tyson Culver, who put it all together, he was the director, he did a great job on, on, on really being able to tell the story. Um, but there are a couple of things. One is wherever we went, and it was in, in Puerto Rico, in Lebanon, in India, people would do whatever they had to do to get the electricity they needed. They were not going to be willing to sit in the dark. That was the one thing that we saw everywhere. And I, I remember in, in Puerto Rico, I interviewed a, a charming woman named Iris Torres, who um, they had been without power for more than uh, close to, as uh, memory called, memories of six or eight months after Hurricane Maria. And I emailed her later in my Spanish article, but in an email, I, I asked her about climate change. I said, how, how, how concerned are you? And she said, well, I'm concerned, but there was no way we could do, we could put in solar panels. We couldn't afford it. It was, out without, it was outside our reach. And she said, yeah, I, you know, I'd like to do my part, but they were running a small gasoline generator, which is, you know, incredibly polluting. It was very inefficient in terms of uh, the energetics on it, but they weren't going to do without electricity. And in India, we saw people who were stealing electricity. I mean, it was very common because they just weren't going to live in the dark. And so the, the, to me, that speaks to 
the absolute essentiality of energy and power to everything we do. And there was one woman we interviewed in the film, Carolyn Kassan, who teaches at New York University, and she said very flatly, she said, electricity means life. And that's what you see in Louisiana now. I'm looking at headlines, we talk about the number of people who've been hospitalized already for carbon monoxide poisoning because they're running small generators because they just want a little juice to run their air conditioning, run their refrigerator. This is the way the world is now. And yet we're facing what is a tsunami of, in, of, of media reporting, of, of, of lobbying by powerful interests in Washington, and by these big pressure groups, uh, Natural Resources Defense Council, Sierra Club, who you're right, have almost unlimited resources, I mean, tens of millions, or even in some cases, over $100 million for some of the biggest philanthropies in America to push this agenda. And, and yeah. who are the people who are saying, no, what about affordability? What about resilience? What about reliability? It's not even being discussed. Yeah. Uh, and I think that it's the conversation seems to only go one direction. And in your conversation with Rupert Darwell and, and, and I've spoken to him as well, you know, it's like, it's not just that you can't hear it. It's being suppressed. You can't, if you try to say something and, and engage in a conversation in a social media platform that doesn't fit the bill, then, you know, you're just kind of pushed to the side or it's oppressed altogether. And that's really dangerous for, for a democracy. And so, you know, it, it's looking more like moving towards some sort of, of tyranny. And, and I worry about what the risks are for this expanded dependence on electricity that we want to focus everything on electricity and do away with, with, with the other things. So now our vehicles will be electric and everything's going to your heating <laughs> will be electric and oh my gosh the cost for that so um but right i mean I, i'll just follow up on that point tammy which is that they want to put more and i made this point before but i want to reiterate it that the push is we're going to retire all coal all natural gas and all nuclear plants and we're going to run the entire grid on solar and wind which are inherently unstable yeah. and intermittent and oh, and we're going to put our entire, all of our energy and power needs on that same grid. And, it, and, and at the same time, the, 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 the reliability of the grid is declining. I mean, it's a deeply dangerous concept. And you're right. I, you, you don't hear any pushback on this. And I've been doing what I can do. And, and a lot of it is motivated by having, by, by being in the dark for two days and realizing, well, what is really going on here? And, you know, there, it's just a, 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 really the result. I had a piece in the Dallas Morning News last month. It's just bad government policy, bad regulation of the, of the electric grid, which is the most important network in our society. I call it the mother network. It's the network upon which all of our critical networks depend. GPS, communications, water and wastewater, um, you know, traffic systems. You know, this is the network that we, we cannot cannot let go dark. And in Texas, we came within a few minutes, and I do mean a very few minutes, of a complete collapse of our state grid. And, and, and it's already kind of already been forgotten. And people, oh, well, you know, this is okay. Well, let's add more wind and solar. And that's exactly what's happening in Texas. The only generation that is being added in the state of Texas over the next two years is all solar and wind. And why is that? Because they're getting lavish federal subsidies to do it. Yeah. That is just insane. <laughs> and when I think, but, I think, but I think it betrays... I think it betrays a, a a larger ignorance of stakes at hand, and it betrays a, a simplistic thinking about the network and about what it means to society. And 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 that is what you know the work of Emmett Penny, who I think is a great essayist, very sharp guy. Um, he calls our nuclear plants our industrial cathedrals, which is yeah. an amazing you know an amazing way to think about it. 
but that, that you know, he's talking about the grid and when the, this is our commons and we can't afford to let the commons be degraded. And I think it's a very important point. Well, I mean, if net zero was truly about saving the environment, you would think that the Engos would be falling over themselves supporting nuclear energy. <laughs> you would think, wouldn't you? No. <laughs> and, and, and the other one is the carbon capture. So I've seen various um, companies say that they're on the cusp of, you know, being commercially viable to um, take out more carbon emissions than they produce and that their that their um, hydrocarbons will will produce if they're burned. So they can actually do negative negative emissions. And then you see the 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 letter by all these different angos to Biden and they did it to Justin Trudeau in Canada as well saying you cannot support carbon capture. It's like wait a second. If this is about emissions and the industry the hydrocarbon industry says that they can actually get to net zero and have net zero emissions, then why, why are you saying don't support it? Well, I mean, it, we could have a whole hour long conversation <laughs> on, on carbon that. capture and on nuclear, but I mean, I, I'm not, a, I'm, I'm, I don't drink the Kool-Aid on the carbon capture sequestration idea. I just think it's, it, it's non-starter because of the problems of scale and, and, and cost and the fact that you've got a, a, a gas, a colorless, odorless gas that's heavier than air, that's an asphyxiant, it's worth nothing. And you're gonna, oh, you're gonna move it all around. Well, no, you're not. It, the idea you can, you know, we're just gonna build a bunch of pipelines, the hell you are. <laughs> you can't build oil and gas pipeline. Oil and gas are worth a lot of money. And you're gonna, oh, you're gonna build a pipeline to move a bunch of stuff that's not just worthless, it's dangerous and, and heavier than air and an asphyxiant. You think there might be a little pushback on that? I think there'd be a lot of pushback on that. <laughs> um, well, that kind of brings me to the point about honesty because when I look at, um, the discussion of, around net zero and decarbonization, I, I think it, there's a real lack of honesty um, in the conversation. And there seems to be two different, at least two different levels of conversation going on about climate change, hydrocarbons, ESG, net zero. And I, I, I would like to ask your opinion on this. So um, I would admit that the position being put out there on the one hand is that the environmental groups and the progressive political posturing and statements about a climate emergency, like you said, all we need to do is, to fix the problem is keep fossil fuels in the ground, build lots of windmills, lots of solar panels, and pe people will just have this really easy transition. <clears throat> Excuse me. That it's um, just a sacrifice we have to make. But on the other hand, there's all these reports and studies from academics that, um, that say something else, that our lifestyles will have to significantly change, that affluence is a problem, that we have to embrace degrowth. So do you think that's an accurate representation? Do you think that there's these, these two different layers or, <clears throat> excuse me, multiple layers being discussed here? Well, you hit the issue of degrowth, which is one that's quite interesting, and I've written about it. I wrote about it in, uh, I believe, in my, my first book, Power Hungry, and also in, in Smaller, Faster, Lighter, and Cheaper, which came out in 2014. You have some of the lead climate activists in America um, who made this very clear that that's what they want. They want to shrink the economy. They want less growth. They want people to do less, move less, travel less, work less. And, you know, to me, it truly is remarkable. And, you know... It, it borders on, 
this um, totalitarianism, frankly. I think that that's the right word. You know, some people would call fascism or whatever. I, I don't like that word. I think it's misused and, and used too much. But there's a totalitarian aspect to part of this about, and, and about one, that humans are bad and that we've done too much and we need to do less. But that there's going to be a command and control system that people are going to decide what people are allowed to do, whether it's, whether in California and Massachusetts already saying they're going to ban internal combustion engines, um, 50, roughly 50 different communities in California banning the use of natural gas. Well, wait a minute, I'm not going to be able to use fuel that I want in my home because you're concerned about climate change? Well, wait a minute, what about my choice? What about the, you know, the fact that banning natural gas in the city of Palo Alto or whichever number of one of many, the many dozens now that have banned it, what effect is that going to have on climate change? Oh, probably nothing. Oh, but you're going to do it anyway because why? Oh, because that's the right thing to do. Well, what about resilience? What about affordability? What, in particular, when you look at affordability, if you force low-income people to use electricity instead of natural gas, well, electricity costs four times more on a BTU basis than natural gas. If you have to heat with, with electricity instead of gas, you're imposing a regressive tax on the poor and the middle class. What about that? Oh, well, you know, climate change. Well, just a minute. Again, climate change is a concern. It's not the only concern. And yet that's a drumbeat that we're just beat with all the time. And, you know, I'm looking at, I mentioned that the headlines that are coming out of Louisiana, a dozen people already hospitalized in Louisiana for carbon monoxide poisoning. Why? Because they need electricity. And yeah, they, oh, they shouldn't have had the generator in their home or shouldn't have been that close. Well, yeah. But, what, but it's indicative of our absolute need for electricity and absolute need for fuel. And it's just being ignored by the powers that be. And I'll call them out the Democratic Party in America. They, they're not serious about reducing emissions. They're only serious about building renewables. Those are not the same thing. Well, I'm, I'm glad you say that because the same thing's happening in Canada and in the UK. <clears throat> and when you talk about um, totalitarianism, that's that's so true and i think of there was an article last september by economist mariana mazzucato who talked about climate lockdowns that we could learn from the pandemic by locking people up for climate and she's now an advisor. she's been hired as an advisor for the government of british columbia on the west coast of canada to advise them on how to move forward with um with their climate policies eric Heyman from deutsche bank talked about having an, the EU needs to have an honest conversation with its citizens and that for the plans that they have for their Green Deal, um, it will need some form of an eco-dictatorship. He was very clear. He's like, the, the kinds of changes that you're proposing, and the EU is, is quite far along on this, um, you're going to be telling people what to do, how to live, how much energy they can consume, and and so on. And there's the the, the deep decarbonization movement, which is you know, like the 350.org guys and Bill McKibben and so on. Then there's the circular economy where it's access versus ownership. So it's not only they're telling you what fuel you can use, which will be nothing because you'll have to use electricity. They're now going to say that everything has to be reused and recycled and you can't have as much and so on with the circular economy and this idea of renting everything and, um, like, for example, during the G7, all the newspapers here were talking about Boris Johnson's wife and how she just rented her clothes. And, gee, isn't this something we should all do? And, you know, it's just 
it's it's appalling and i'm glad that you mentioned energy I'd rather, density I'd rather just buy my levi's or my wranglers or my nikes i mean they're not worth enough to rent all right no, <laughs> wearing different kind of clothes work? than what i wear <laughs> <laughs> um i'm glad you mentioned energy density though because um there's this sort of schizophrenia uh, in some ways about the environmental movement because on the one hand, they're talking about circular economy, where you have to have a low human footprint, more recycling, less mining, um, less hydrocarbon extraction, less disturbance of the natural world. But in the next breath, they're championing windmills and solar panels, which have such a huge built environment. I thought it was really good the way you represented in your book and in the documentary, how that one nuclear power plant, Indian Point, and how many windmills it would take to produce the same amount of energy. And, yeah, that's, and you... that's an absolutely critical point is, is that in, so in, in my fourth book, Power Hungry, I, I, I just made a very simple argument, which was that our energy and power system is governed by four things. I call them the four imperatives, power density, energy density, cost and scale. So cost and scale, pretty well understood. Energy density is about the amount of energy that can be tamed in a given area generally or given volume. Uh, but power density is the absolute key, and I'm, I'm glad you like the the, the 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 reference to that in 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 a question of power and in the film, because the, the, due largely to pressure from the Natural Resource Defense Council, the former president and CEO of the Natural Resource Defense Council now, by the way, Gina McCarthy, is a senior climate advisor to President Biden, which it, to me is the if you want the fox in the hen house, okay, go ahead. So NRDC bragged about closing the Indian Point nuclear plant after it was closed. Bragged about it. Well, to replace that output of that plant, which was producing about 16 terawatt hours when it was fully operational, you'd have to recover 1,300 square kilometers of land, at least 1,300 square kilometers, with wind turbines to produce that same amount of energy. Well, you can't build wind energy in New York State. The rural backlash against the wind business in that state is is is, is ferocious. And yeah. yet they're claiming, oh, well, we'll just put it out there, you know, in, in flyover country. Well, there ain't none of that. And, I, and I, I'll mention one other uh, a study that I did this year came out in April at the center of the, Amer of the American experiment. The, 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 there are now 312, if memory serves, 312 different communities, government entities who since 2015 have rejected or restricted wind projects. And they're doing it in some of the most democratic states in the country, in, in New York, California. You can't build new wind capacity in, in, in California. You can't do it. And yet we're being sold this myth, this, uh, frank, you know, I'll use the word, it's a lie. It's a lie, a bold-faced lie, that we can transition completely to renewables. We can't. There's not enough land. There isn't enough neodymium, cobalt, copper, steel, concrete. And the people who live out in these rural areas don't want your stupid-ass wind turbines in their backyard. They just don't. And so it's just a, uh, it, it, it is in a, it, we're in a, in a very dangerous time, I think, in the United States about how we talk about energy and power and and it's being the, the the discussion is being is being skewed so heavily to one side and it is really deeply dangerous yeah you're you're absolutely right you, I, get, you get me all wound up here Nima. Huh? i know <laughs> sorry <laughs> but you know you mentioned the mark mill study and I, his was really awesome um where he basically said how are you going to do this these are all the things this is all the space going to take and there was um, a fellow from the uk who talked about what would be required just to switch over the uk and there was a dutch study um that did the same thing because a few years ago the dutch government said um to their engineers 
we need to start preparing for go being net zero and everything. So tell us what we need to do in order to ensure that Holland will be will be set for this. And the engineering report came back and said there's not enough stuff for right. for even just Holland to go full net zero. Um, and if I can just jump in, so the study that I did, I'm happy to point your, your listeners to it, it's called Not in Our Backyard. It was published by the Center of the American Experiment in Minneapolis, and you can find it on their website, americanexperiment.org. You can find it on my website, robertbryce.com. I also have a link on my website to the database of all 300 rejections and their URLs and names of the names of locales. And, and one other thing, Tammy, and I know I'm interrupting, but you know, I, I have a podcast and I interrupt other people. I'm sorry, <laughs> but I'm, I'm looking at a headline now as we speak. It's a Reuters story just published today. Uh, India has urged utilities to import coal as coal-fired generation surged in Asia's third largest economy after the easing of coronavirus-related curve. The coal-fired power output in India in, in August was up 23.7% from a year ago. Wow. Oh, Oh, we're going to close coal plants in the United States. We're going to go all renewable. We're going to do all these things. We're going to close all our nuclear plants, and that's going to make a difference. Do you really think so? When India and China are building more coal plants, and in, in last year, just in the first half of the, of the year, I just wrote a piece that was published in Forbes that Ember published a, a think tank out, of, out of, of London, pointing out that CO2 emissions from the electric sector went up 5% last year. Why? Because electricity demand is up 5%. And where, how is China meeting its incremental demand growth for electricity with coal, which is what the same thing is happening in Bangladesh, Kazakhstan, Pakistan, Vietnam. I mean, it's all, all across South Asia. And so this idea that we're going to solve it on our own and the rest of the world is going to follow, follow us, yeah, not so much. Exactly. Why would they? Why would they do it? It makes no sense, especially when coal is is more um, widely distributed across um, the globe. So there's no, you don't have to worry about a cartel trying to, you know, embargo you or something like that. Um, and and the coal plants are easier to build and so on. And it makes complete sense. And so the Western countries are supposed to throw themselves on their swords, so to speak, and, and uh, make this huge transition and everybody else will just laugh, especially China and Russia. Russia just built... Canada can't seem to build pipelines, but Russia just built, I think, one or two, um, one through the Arctic and one one over to China. So it's not like they're stopping. And what worries me. Oh, and, that's, and, that's a, and that's a key point, too, is that one of the, the in, in my view, I mean, we talk about what is happening in geopolitics around energy. Well, increasingly, geopolitics are being reshaped around gas pipelines. We saw that with the Europeans, really with the Germans uh, going forward with the Nord Stream 2 pipeline, which will tie them much more closely to Russia. But we've also seen it with the power of Siberia pipeline, a 5,000-mile pipeline that calls for, I think it's a 40-year contract where the Russians are going to be supplying natural gas into China. So this idea that, oh, they're going to do all this and they're going to change their, their economies and they're going to follow us. The idea that they're going to, oh, you, well, yeah, we're going to follow you Yankees. Well, I, don't, I haven't seen that happen yet. Well, you know, I like I read your testimony to Congress, um, and I I really like the part where you said, and I'm I'm quoting you here, a society that has a variety of energy sources, transportation as well as electricity generation will be more resilient than one that relies on a single source, and I think that's so important, especially when you talk about national security, because in the '70s, all the talk was about diversification of energy sources, um, in order to enhance that national security, and the ultimate question. Is if one is was not self-sufficient, which country was a reliable and secure supplier? And it's like we're we're just throwing that out the window because if you're going to go full electric, and you're not even going to use the electricity that that would produce enough, like nuclear or 
whatever, and you want to invest in renewables um, like windmills and solar panels, and you're now becoming not just sole source for, for your grid on, on those unreliable renewables, but where you're sourcing it from, which is controlled, you know, by China. Three quarters of the the rare earth resources are controlled in some way by China and 90% of their processing. Right. So how is that going to get done when you're relying upon a foreign power that isn't necessarily friendly and had cut people off before, like when they cut Japan off? So back in 2010. And, so and, to... and, and that's a critical point because, you know, it's funny, like, uh, as I said, so I'm, I, I'm from City One in, in July and I feel like you know, I've been doing journalism for 30 years and sometimes I just feel like I repeat myself. 11 years ago in my book, Power Hungry, I had a whole chapter on rare earth elements and about the fact that we're going to, this idea that, oh, we're going to quit using oil and the rest of it, well, we're going to reduce, we're going to exchange dependence on foreign oil or dependence on foreign commodities, uh, the yeah. critical with the, the IEA, the International Energy Agency, called critical minerals. And you're right. Uh, there was great piece analysis done by Richard Harrington. I wrote about it in the, in the New York Post about two and a half or three years ago, where he pointed out if the UK has tried to go you know, all electric vehicles, how many, how much of the world's copper, neodymium, praseodymium, uh, manganese, all these other things that would be required. And then in May, the International Energy Agency released a report that went into chapter and verse on that very issue. And and how China controls such a large segment of the of the the supply for those critical materials, critical uh, critical metals, uh, copper, manganese, zinc, um, and 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 I'll just tie it back to the power density issue, and and then I'll shut up. But the, the, there is one hard and fast rule when it comes to power density: the lower the power density, the higher the resource intensity. If you have a very low power density, which wind does, which Corn ethanol does. You have to counteract that by putting more steel, more concrete, more copper, more fertilizer in the case of ethanol. That's to rule. There's nothing that's absolutely the case. And so this idea that, oh, we're just going to convert to all these low power density sources, well, you're going to require just gargantuan amounts of land and copper and steel and all these things that we care about and cost money and are all increasing in price now uh, because of the way the, the world economy is going. So. It's a very dangerous road, and and it and it's not appreciated. And yet, as you point out, you know, so much of the money, the money and the media and the momentum is on the side of this uh, basically a very dangerous kind of approach. So, why do you think that is? Why do you think um, all of these different groups, um, part of this movement? Why why do you think they're pursuing this? Well. <laughs> That's a good question. Uh, you know, I ran into a guy who was works for the Sierra Club a few weeks ago, and he said something in passing that I was interested in. He said, the Sierra Club's a campaigning organization. So, you know, it's, it's kind of, and, and I thought about that later. I, well, it's easier to run for office than it is to govern. Right? It's easier to run around and say, oh, everything's screwed up, and that guy screwed up, and I'm going to do a better job. It's far easier to do that to actually make things work. And so <laughs> they don't care about how things work. They only care about campaign because the campaign is the end to them. There's nothing, they're never going to govern. That's not their problem. So their campaign is designed to, do, to continue the campaign. Well, which means, well, then we're going to campaign and then we're going to raise more money for the campaign because that's all we do. We campaign. Well, okay. Well, if that's the case, then it just reveals that they're, that, that they're not concerned about the outcome because the outcome matters not a whit to them. And so that is, I think that goes to the heart of it, but it's also, you know, 
Follow the money. Follow the damn money. I mean, this is the oldest max, maxim in politics. I come back to Texas. In February, we February 15th, 2 a.m., the lights went out at 2 a.m. in our house on February 15th in the morning. Well, okay, so you look back at the ERCOT grid and uh, the Electric Reliability Council of Texas. You look back at that moment, at that period, the wind and solar were effectively nowhere to be found. They'd gone to Camden with Ted Cruz. They were not around. Well, that matters. Why? Because in the years before the blackouts, there was $66 billion spent on solar and wind in Texas. Why was $66 billion spent in Texas? Follow the money. They got $22 billion in subsidies. Well, so yeah. why else would they build anything else? But you spend all this money that effectively is worth nothing when the chips are down and the grid was on the verge of collapse. Well, that's a problem. Has it been resolved? No, it hasn't, because there is so much money behind wind and solar and the, and the lobbies behind them are very powerful. And the Republicans like to say, oh, well, we're just going to open the market to competition. Well, no, not on the electric grid. Gasoline, tortillas, hamburgers, yeah, the market. On the electric grid, it's a whole different story. Yeah, I agree with you there for sure. Um, I think that I, I just want to sort of push back a little bit. Undoubtedly, money and profit is a part of it. But I think the, the larger movement, um, the climate industrial complex, the transnational progressive movement, however one wishes to describe it, I think there's multiple motivations there. So like finance and business is brought on side using the whole lure of money and profit. And then the engos are brought on to save the planet. And the media comes in because they can rave about justice and exert some kind of control over the narrative. And then you have academics brought in for career promotion and some are true believers. And, you know, they like the idea of experimenting on structural transformation. Politicians are brought in because of money and power and maybe some altruistic goals, who knows? But I still have this feeling, and I agree with Rupert Darwell, that, that there's something else behind it. I don't know if it's if it's an ideological framework or motivation, but there's there's something else there, and it's hard to put a finger on it because uh, I don't know. It's like it's it's currently hidden. Like I think there's different. It's sort of like when the Russian Revolution happened, and there was there were many different groups who had different ideas of what the ultimate outcome should be, and in the initial years of the Russian Revolution. Um, different groups were eliminated until one was left standing. And I feel like that's sort of where we're going with all of this, that there's, there's something else there that, that, um, that is guiding things. I don't know. Yeah. I, I, I don't know that I would go that far and that there's something more nefarious here. I, I, you know, when you hear hoofbeats think, think, think horses, not zebras, um, I just think it's much more simple. I think it's about camp, the campaign. It's about the cost. It's about the, the feeling of belonging and being against, oh, those evil fossil fuel companies. Oh, well, even fossil fuels. Well, I don't call them fossil fuels. They're hydrocarbons. Um, yeah. and, and that's a more accurate term. And um, I just think that there is a, the, the social marketing around renewables, the social marketing around we're going to stick it to the man. We're going to stick it to the oil companies. We're going to eat no matter that, in fact, you know, the Biden administration was recently appealing to OPEC to increase more oil production. Well, it's a tacit admission that, that, that oil runs the world economy. At the same time, they're shutting down Zone XL. They're approving Norgen 2. You know, they've, they've shut down, you know, federal offshore leasing. I mean, it, it, there's a deep craziness at work here. And I think, uh, you know, that's about the best political analysis I can come up with, deep craziness. <laughs> So, okay, um, 
we're we're nearing the end of of our time here, but I wanted to ask you, what do you think is needed to have a resilient and reliable power grid? What do you think they need to do? What what's the best energy mix to make this sure. work? Well, what needs to happen right away is the, the suspend all the closures of the nuclear and coal plants. You, you, we need to keep those plants in operation until it is proven very clearly that we do without them. And, uh, you know, in my view, these closures of nuclear plants are, I mean, they're just, it, it, it boggles the mind. And, it, and to me, the fact that they're being closed is the best indicator that Democrats are not serious about climate change. They're just not. They can say they are, but saying they are, you know, it's like that old thing, that old saying, well, listen to what they say and what they do. And yeah. what are they doing? They're not preserving the nuclear power plants. And I think that that betrays their true colors. Um, so what do we need for resilience, reliability, affordability? I think if, if, and we're going to attempt to reduce CO2 emissions. Well, let's, let's full on a nuclear power. I mean, there's just no doubt about it. I mean, they're just, the debate is over on this. Um, and, you know, and I think it, it's it, it, the other part of that is we need a variety of fuels. We cannot rely just on one supply chain. We need diverse fuel supplies. And I'll, I'll, I'll summarize this. I, there was a guy on my podcast named Tucker Perkins. He was with the Propane Education and Research Council. And I've stolen this idea from him. I'm crediting him. But he said, we need the 3D grid. We need the underground grid, which is where, where oil and gas are, are, are transported mainly. We need the surface grid, which is where we store propane, where we store gasoline in our vehicles and we store other things, you know, other liquid fuels. And then we need overhead grid, which is where most of the electricity is transferred. So he said all three of those grids are needed to assure energy security, affordability, and reliability. And I think it's a very, very sharp way, very good way to think about how we envision our energy and power systems. We need multiple grids. And if we depend, if we try and depend on just one, we're asking for trouble. That's an excellent description. I'm so glad you brought that up. I'm going to have to, to, to look him up. Um, have you heard about the, the Chinese plan for a global energy interconnection? I have not. So it's this ultra high voltage, super global grid. Um, and they had a meeting in Vancouver, actually, I think it was in 2019, where they were, they've been exploring this issue, I think, since about 2016, 2017 through the UN. And one of the advisors for what they call GuideCo, this global energy interconnection, is Stephen Chu, who was the former um, Secretary of Energy under Obama. And the plan is to have solar and wind in various appropriate places around the globe, and it will all be sent to where it needed when it's needed through these ultra high voltage lines crisscrossing the globe. It's crazy. <laughs> but um, the fact that Stephen Chu's involved, I, I'm not quite sure what to make of that. And um, I'm not sure how far along they are with this. It's It reminded me of Desert Tech, which was this idea 10 years ago about putting solar panels through in the desert in the Middle East and then um, supplying Europe with with electricity from from the Middle East. Yeah, I, I, I'm familiar. I remember that it was in the it was in the northern Sahara and they were going to or in Libya and they were going to transport it across the Mediterranean into Europe. And, yeah, of course, went nowhere uh, as did the, the big solar plans that the Saudis announced a few years ago and they went nowhere. Um, yeah. You know, and the idea that we would tie our electric grid to the Chinese. Yeah, nah, nah, I think that's a bad idea. 
I know. It's just. Like, there, are you going to throw in the virus for free? Is, the, is that going to be like the bonus for our signing bonus? You get to send the virus over here and then act like it's not your fault. I mean, I don't, yeah. I'm, you know, I, I'm not a kind of bastard, but I just, I clear China is not our friend. And the idea that we would depend on them for pretty much, you know, any more than we already do at Walmart and everywhere else, I think is probably a bad idea. Yeah, for sure. Okay. So one last thing. Um, I'm going to end on a light note here. So. Sure. Um, what are you reading right now? Oh, what am I reading? Um, I'm distracted mainly. I've been, uh, oh, I got a book just, um, and in fact, I'm, uh, it's called Before It's Late, A Scientist's Case for Nuclear Energy by a guy named Bernard Cohen that was written, it was published in the 80s, and I was looking at it, in fact, just the other day, it was a gift to me when I was in Minneapolis a few weeks ago, 1983. And the point that he makes in here, um, he says, as I see it, the most important problems in public understanding of nuclear power are the following. Wildly exaggerated fear of radiation, distorted picture of reactor meltdown risk, failure to understand and quantify risk, unjustified fears about disposal of waste. I mean, it's like this book could have been written today. So that's one that's uh, right here at hand. Um, but I'll be honest with you, my, the books that I've been reading, I've, I've been, they, they, they stack up faster than I read them. I'll be, I'll be very clear. <laughs> <laughs> it's always good to have um, books ready to go at some point in the future when you have time. Yes. And I'm hoping that that happens. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. Um, it was such a, a good thing to talk with you because you have this, this amazing insight and you been researching this for some time and you have a really nice clear way of expressing the absurdities <laughs> to some extent well that's very kind i appreciate it tammy good luck on your podcast i appreciate it